Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it makes us wise. And I pray that as we study your word, we would be encouraged by it. We would be humbled by it. Um, I pray that it would be our desire to submit ourselves to your word and in your word um, come to understand you more and love you more deeply and be more fully committed to pursuing you. Um, So, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, guide us as we go through this passage of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. Mark 15. Starting in verse 1 of Mark 15. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. So the last time we saw Jesus was back in uh, chapter 14, verses 61 to 65. And then you had this kind of interlude about Peter denying uh, denying Jesus. And at that uh, last scene with Jesus sort of on trial before the Sanhedrin, he had quoted Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, um, talking about the Son of Man coming on the clouds. And uh, that was sort of the nail in the coffin with which he was to be accused of blasphemy, okay? And the punishment for blasphemy, according to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, is death. So the council then condemns Jesus to be uh, put to death. And they mock him as a prophet. They spit on him. They strike him. They abuse him in various ways. So all of that sets the stage for our verses that open with the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the whole council. This is all of the Jewish religious establishment conspiring to have Jesus brought before Pilate. And their goal here is to have their death sentence approved by Pilate as the Roman governor. And um, what you really have here is an example of powerful people, a powerful cabal, if you will, manipulating the outcome. And and they're doing this on two levels. Um, This is kind of speculation, but I I think it's fair. I don't know how many people are in this council. Does anybody know how many people made up the Sanhedrin? Is that what it is? Okay. So there's at least 70, because then you also have the high priest and you have... Um, it sounds like there's additionally elders and scribes. So it sounds like you've got the whole council and elders and scribes and the chief priests. So this is quite a few people. Um, and I think it's worth asking the question, do we really believe every single person in this group was absolutely convinced that Jesus was deserving of death? Um, is it possible that there are some people in this crowd that went along with this because of pressure? Right, totally. You've also got in Acts chapter 2, when Peter finally stands up and gives his uh, speech at Pentecost, he, he says, you put this man to death. Um, I don't think he means like you as the people generally. I, th- I think he probably specifically is referring to some people in the crowd who were participants in this. Um, again, I, I, I can't prove it. The point I'm trying to make is we don't have any record of anyone dissenting to this outcome, and yet I, I think it is reasonable to say there might have been at least a couple people in the crowd who were not in favor of it. Um, and the, the reason I'm bringing this up is uh, be careful when you find yourself in a mob of people and you get swept up in groupthink, right? Right. Uh, be careful of the consequences of finding yourself in a situation where because everybody else is pressuring a certain direction, you go along with that pressure. Did you find a number? Where is it 71? I didn't dig too deep, but it's okay. 71 to say he was made up of the same, according to Talmud. Okay. 
So at least 70. Um, yeah, so you've got some, some uh, pressure probably being implied in this group as Jesus is being condemned to murder. But the second reason you've got powerful people manipulating the outcomes is because these are the elites of the Jewish religious society, and they've done this trial in convicting Jesus in the middle of the night. And uh, whether the masses agree with them or not, what, what happens is the sun rises, people begin to wake up. Have you heard the news? Jesus is, has been condemned by the leaders, right? Um, that was the goal in doing this under the dead of night. So whether the people in Jerusalem agreed with the outcome or not, by this point it was too late to have a dissenting view. There weren't a whole lot of common folk that were involved in this trial. There were some clearly sitting outside like Peter does, but none of them were asked their real opinion to result to bring about the resulting uh, conviction, okay? Um, the reason why I find this interesting is, do you know where most of the heresy comes from in churches? It actually does not come from the common folk. It has a tendency to make its way down from the seminaries and the governing bodies down, trickling down into the, the common folk. Um, Usually the, the seminary, like take, take a denomination. Um, I don't know. Let's just say the Methodist denomination. So the United Methodist Church. Yeah, the United Methodist Church. Uh, it, it is the, it's the intellectual elites that generally begin the movements towards heresy. Um, so I find this kind of an interesting scene where the common folk who a week before were praising Jesus are now going to be manipulated and swept up by the religious elite to condemn him to death and cheer for his, uh, his execution. Um, you know, it's, I'll just give you actually a, real, a, a, much, um, a much more specific example. Is, is anybody following what's going on in the SBC right now? Uh, we're not a Southern Baptist Convention church, but... The Southern Baptist Convention is debating whether women can be pastors, and the executive committee that leads the SBC convention is manipulating and shutting down the debate. Um, if you want to go look into it, it's kind of fascinating, but churches from the SBC send members as delegates to go to their annual convention, and they're not being given an opportunity to speak and say that this, is, this movement is a movement away from actually the SBC written convictions. So anyway, okay. Uh, Luke 20 verse 20 seems to indicate that the Jews didn't have the authority to just execute um, sort of religiously, like they didn't have the right to execute somebody for blasphemy, okay? Uh, I think that's one of the things Luke 20, 20 is indicating. And this is because the Romans ran a pretty tight ship when it came to governing uh, the subjects in their empire. Roman law preceded or transcended whatever local law was, okay? So this is why the Jews don't just execute Jesus at the end of his trial, why they bring him before Pilate. Uh, verse 20 of Luke 20 says, So they watched Jesus and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Okay? Now, it's kind of more than possible that these religious leaders could have had Jesus kind of uh, assassinated in some kind of back alley plot. I think that could have happened. But... Um, there's a, a, a problem and a risk with that approach, okay? The problem is that Jesus has become such a public figure and he's become so popular that the Jews actually need him to be publicly executed. And the reason is because they needed this entire movement to be crushed, right? So you execute Jesus in a back alley and that, that because it's not a public execution, you've not publicly put an end to the movement, 
And of course, there's the risk that if the Romans found out a public figure like Jesus just sort of disappeared, they might begin asking some questions. Someone might leak the details, and that might put these religious leaders at risk. But of course, there's a more providential reason for Jesus' public execution, right? What is it? Scripture. <laughs> right? Scripture. Prophecy. It's the fulfillment of uh, Jesus declaring himself in John 3.14 that the Son of Man must be lifted up, or that when the Son of Man is lifted up. And you've got a prophecy, Deuteronomy 21.23 uh, cursed is every man who is hung on a tree. Paul quotes that in Galatians 3.13 by saying that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Okay, so you've got the, this is just kind of an interesting uh, thought experiment about the providence of God and the machinations of man, right? Jesus is going to end up in the cr on the cross because it's God's will, but we can also think about why did the Pharisees not just have him put to death? Well, because of these different constraints. Okay. Any thoughts or comments or questions on any of that? Okay, so they delivered Jesus over to the Roman governor, Pilate, and then some conversation ensues, right? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews in verse 2? And uh, why, why would that be the first thing that Pilate would ask him, at least according to Mark? Why is that the important question? Do you think Pilate cares at all about the claim that Jesus is a blasphemer? No, it's, no. it's because there's, I mean, there's supposed to be one king to them, which is Caesar, and if there's another king that would cause, if there's another king and people start thinking there's another king, these things, and loyalty could go to him and there would be problems. Right, so that's exactly right. I, Pilate doesn't give a crud what happens among the Jews with their religious things, right? That's their problem. Um, <clears throat> what he does have to be concerned about is if there is a movement that would be considered treason. So if Jesus is establishing himself as a king who is in opposition to the emperor, then that is a um, that that would be a conviction punishable by death according to Roman law. So Jesus responds in kind of a cryptic way, and I actually really don't like the way that the ESV translates this. Is anybody reading another translation? Um, what is the? Just read verse two for us. You yourselves say yes. You yourself say yes. You yourself say yes. And KJV says, Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you said. It is as you say. That's probably a better translation. Anybody else? NIV says, You have said so. You have said so. Anybody, anybody have anything else different? I, I like the ESV translation, but um, there are some points where I'm like, I don't know why they chose to go this route. So the verb here is lego, and, um, which is like to say, and it's a present active indicative. So the problem with the ESV saying, you have said so, what tense is that? Past tense, right? You have said so. It makes it sound as if we're not privy to some scene where Pilate is himself professing Jesus to be king of the Jews. I don't think that's what is taking place here. The present active indicative can, could literally be translated like this. You say. In other words, Pilate, you're the governor. That's up to you to determine. Right? You're the man in charge. It's your call, Pilate. Um, anybody have any thoughts or questions or comments on that? Okay, I think Jesus could have answered this question either yes or no. Why could he answer yes? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Why could Jesus say yes to that? Because he's the king of all the earth. Yeah, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the messianic savior. He's the son of David as far as scripture is concerned, um, he literally does have a right to this throne. Um, why could Jesus answer no? Since the public eye, he has no title, like official 
Yeah, so as far as Pilate's question, right, are you the king of the Jews? Are you a competitor to Caesar, right? Pilate is thinking about kingship in a very different format than Jesus has come to rule and reign in, right? So there's a sense in which you could say, well, not in the way you're thinking about king, right? But the cryptic non-answer that Jesus gives does nothing really to help his case, right? Does Jesus make a strong defense? Not at all. Are you familiar with Isaiah 53? Uh, We call that chapter the suffering servant. And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, it says that he opened not his mouth. So in prophesying about the crucifixion of Christ, Isaiah 53 anticipates that the Messiah will not make some kind of defense of himself. Um, And verse uh, verse 3 really indicates this, um, that Jesus allowed the chief priests to really define his role, to, to define his crime. Pilate's view of Jesus is going to be shaped not by Jesus' own defense of his position. It's going to be shaped predominantly by the religious leaders. So Pilate, then following Roman legal tradition, um, makes a strong effort to get a legal defense from Jesus, but he's unable. And you can see verse 5. What does it say about Pilate? The way he perceives Jesus' behavior. Yeah, he's amazed, right? Um, why is that? That was probably not the first time he was uh, on the verge of execute, executing someone, and people were trying everything to not be killed. So, how come he's not saying anything to save himself? Yeah. Yeah, most people probably would have been like just saying any kind of defense they could. Right. Put yourself in a courtroom where you're being falsely accused and the judge has the power to execute you. You're going to do everything in your power. Like maybe even fall on your knees and kiss his feet and beg and plead. Yeah. I also think that Pilate knew that the accusations were false because uh, we can see that uh, after that he found like he found no jails in this man or in this man was new that all the accusations were false. So the uh, the correct expectation is like somebody saying, No, you know that what they're saying is false or something, whatever, you know. Yeah. So he's just amazed that he knows that it's false. Jesus he knows that Jesus knows it's false, but Jesus nothing. Yeah, sometimes like the guilty person, we see that on TV, you know, he is guilty, everyone knows it, and he won't say a thing. Right. Like it's just gonna make his case worse or whatever. Sure. But the innocent one saying nothing well, that's, that's unheard of. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, and I would say in addition to that, uh, like, does Pilate know that Jesus is innocent? Well, if the charge is treason, this man is clearly not instigating some kind of treasonous rebellion, right? If anything, who's guilty of treason? It would be the Jews, right? Uh, because they're the ones that Pilate has constantly had trouble with uh, quelling their rebellions. So as judge presiding over this case, that a man would keep his mouth shut and not make some kind of defense is, um, is pretty incredible. And I think that it's fair to say that probably, probably every person living in this culture in this time had at least some basic understanding of the Roman legal system that uh, that that Pilate would have the authority to execute a political dissident, um, and so yeah, the expectation would be that any man falsely accused of this would defend himself vehemently, and Jesus makes no no effort. He really, really, what it comes down to is he shows zero fear about Pilate's authority. And we know from some of the other Gospels, in fact, that they have a bit of a discussion about that where Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to put you to death? And Jesus responds with just, I guess you could say, a lot of courage when he says, um, 
You know, the only authority that you have is the authority that's been given to you by God, right? You don't, you don't have the authority to take my life. I'm laying my life down. You misunderstand the power dynamics here, Pilate. So, uh, verse 6. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So that's really interesting, right? Here's a guy who has participated in an insurrection, and he's a murderer, and he's not been put to death yet. Contrast that with Jesus, who has done none of those things and is immediately going to end up on the cross. Um, it's kind of interesting. Okay, verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So what you have here is a distinction between the, the religious leadership crying for the crucifixion of Jesus and Pilate appealing to the crowd looking for kind of a way out from applying the conviction of, of treason, uh, executing Jesus. Um, verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Um, there's no attestation outside of the Bible of some kind of uh, tradition where on feast days a prisoner would be released. Um, but it, it, it sort of fits with the way Romans interacted with the nations that they subjugated. They were rather conciliatory, understanding that kind of making concessions to people to keep them uh, calm and obedient was much easier than quelling rebellions. But I think the information here shows that Pilate was actually looking for an opportunity to set Jesus free. I think what you are perceiving here is that if the charges against Jesus couldn't be dismissed on a formal legal defense and acquittal, that maybe Pilate could go this back route and offer a pardon, right, without the, the judicial uh, process. And, and in this way, he wouldn't feel weak or he wouldn't appear weak, right? So it, it appears that Pilate, based on verse um, 11, clearly perceived that the religious establishment were, were out to get Jesus. And, um, you know, it was them who brought the accusation against Christ. So set them aside. Let me go directly to the crowd, to the masses. These are the people that might ultimately riot. And let's see if we can appeal to them to request that Jesus be pardoned. Um, and uh, we also know that from Matthew twenty-seven nineteen, Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus, and so she is also she she sent a message to him saying, "Don't participate in this man's execution. I've had a dream about him, and he troubles me." Uh, unfortunately, instead of requesting the release of Jesus, the crowd, I think, surprises Pilate. I think that's the impression you get from verse 14. And instead of saying, yeah, release Jesus, who is a guy known throughout the region for feeding people, healing people, teaching a message of love your neighbor... <laughs> Uh, it's, and I, I would imagine Pilate has got wind of this because the Romans were pretty, um, they were pretty in tune to the different political things going on under their, their dominion in these different nations. Uh, but instead of requesting the release of Jesus, the crowd cries out, out for Barabbas to be released. Um, this guy is a, an enemy of Rome. He's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. He's an all-around bad guy. And so Pilate's escape hatch here ends up blocked. He's forced to release Barabbas to appease the crowd here. The, the irony of his name is, is 
What is it again? Remind me. Bar Abba, son of the father. Mm. Abba the father. Uh, At least to convict the real son of God for a false son of God. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for pointing that out. Wow. Well, I'm going to pick up on that and say that actually this, even this scene is uh, reminiscent of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. So if you know anything about the Day of Atonement, or if you don't, I'll just tell you, what, what would happen is there would be two goats that would be brought to the temple, and one goat was selected to bear the sins of the people, and it would be sacrificed. And the other goat would have its, would, the priest would lay his hands on that goat and basically pronounce it to be um, sinful, guilty of sin as well. But that one would be released out into the wilderness. So we don't have a, an exact correlation here, but certainly I think the scene should remind us of that ritual, knowing what we know about Christ. Here are two men. One is innocent, one is guilty. One will go to the cross, and the other will be set free. Right? I mean, that's essentially a picture of the gospel in a nutshell. So Pilate tries one last desperate attempt to get Jesus out from under the demand of the priest to crucify him. He appeals to the crowd one more time. Verse 12, what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? Yeah. What verse was that in Leviticus? Uh... It's, it's like most of Leviticus, but I think, or Leviticus 16, but I think it picks up in like verse 11. That whole chapter is about the Day of Atonement, I believe. So you can just go take a look at that. Um, yeah, it begins in verse 1, but really you get to the goat part. Um, verse 15 is where that really picks up. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Pilate asks the crowd, what, what, what do you want me to do with this man? And he seems shocked to find that the crowd wants him crucified. Remember, only a week before, Jesus had come into Jerusalem to the praise of the people. And I do not think it's speculation to say that uh, Pilate for sure knew about that because... Here comes a man that is being hailed as Messiah. In the mind of the Jews, this is a very political thing. Pilate is the governor. And so I think he's astounded to find that this crowd that a week before was looking to Jesus as some kind of hero is now demanding his execution. And from the perspective of the crowd, the change of, the, of heart is, is really quite shocking. Um, how, how did this happen? Chief priests stirred him up, but I wonder what they did. Yeah, the chief priests stirred stirred the people up, and obviously that that's a huge part of it. But I think the the reason they were able to stir him up is because, in the mind of the Jews, the Messiah was a political savior. Right? He would come and he would overthrow the Roman Empire. He would establish the throne of David. He would bring about another golden age of, of Israel. And what did Jesus do since entering Jerusalem? You know, he didn't tell people, go get weapons. Instead, he went into the temple and he insulted everybody there. Um, he didn't start holding political rallies. He, he just, he essentially laid low. So I think, I think the reason they're able to stir the people up is the expectations have been disappointed. What, what in particular made him disappointed uh, from a week ago? That he was captured? That, uh, that this Messiah has come into the place where he's going to establish his throne and he's done nothing to make that happen. But a week ago, so they were praising him. I'm just curious why you think they changed their mind in a week. Because if they thought you know he was supposed to be the king, it wasn't happening up until a week ago and they were all praising him. So Jesus, what I'm saying is Jesus comes into Jerusalem to the praise of the people. And this is like, this is the, the night of the insurrections beginning, right? 
and then and then a week unfolds and nothing happens, right? I, I guess maybe you could say it's sort of like everybody getting really excited about some politician announcing his plan to campaign for the presidency. To forgive student debt. Yeah, yeah, right, those kinds of things. And uh, and then it doesn't happen, right? And so the people turn on him. Um, I think that's why they were able to, to incite the crowd. Uh, <clears throat> But man, how fickle are people? Because these people have been, again, fed by Jesus, taught by Jesus, cared for by Jesus, healed by Jesus, welcomed and accepted by him. In fact, in fact, the, 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 the switch is incredible because I think for the most part, the people despised the religious leaders. They were the powerful, the authority, you know, the kind of people who would look down on their nose at the, the sinners and tax collectors. And yet here they are, just like that, teaming up together. All right, in response to Pilate's question, what evil has he done, verse 14, no serious answer is given. Um, this is what's called like an ad hominem, right? So rather than actually give a logical explanation to the question that's being answered, they just slander Jesus and yell, crucify him, all the louder. Um, and this is just a picture of the madness of crowds, right? The way that cultures tend to operate in the realm of what we would call public opinion. Um, you might be absolutely innocent as far as legal terms are concerned, but once you get a crowd like this that has determined that you are guilty, I mean, what can Pilate do? Yeah, it says... Um Commentary for this um, says from Mark, quote from Mark Twain, public opinion is held in reverence. It settles everything. Some think it is the voice of God. Yeah, <clears throat> which is tragic, right? And we see this a lot. I mean, some tragedy happens in our culture. The media within minutes has a narrative. That narrative is transmitted to people's minds. And even if even just a couple of days later, the truth comes out that that's not how it actually happened. Too late. Um, yeah, those, those kinds of things, right? Um, you know, I, I, yeah, probably a good one would be like Brett Kavanaugh being accused of, of improprieties. Uh, absolutely baseless claims, and yet it didn't even matter. That, that the public opinion was, was made because the narrative was set. There's probably lots of those that we could refer to, but um, what you have here are the roaring cries of a mob filled with a kind of bloodlust at this point. So this is death, not by guilty conviction, but by popular demand. And isn't that exactly what mankind has been chasing since the garden? Right? Out of spite for God, spite towards God, who pronounced judgment upon man for his guilty deeds tossed him out of the garden as a part of that consequence, we now see ourselves as having ascended to the judgment seat over God to cast judgment on him. And no guilt is found in this trial. No guilt is necessary as far as we're concerned. Uh, all that is necessary is that we stir up the malice latent in human hearts and we pronounce God condemned and guilty and we send him off to be executed. Um, so I would say the contrast to the garden couldn't be more, more glaring. Um, God is actually quite merciful to the man, even though he is just to condemn him. And when you flip it around, man has no mercy for God when given the opportunity to get his way. And Pilate is weak. Um, he assumes, if you look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 24, uh, Pilate assumes that he can just kind of wash his hands of this, as if, as if he's not the one that's responsible for the condemnation of Jesus. But he is guilty of it. He's implicit in it. And Acts chapter 2 will specifically say uh, that Pilate is guilty of this. But he says yes to the demand of the crowd to have Jesus crucified. The demand couldn't be granted apart from Pilate's assent. And so what do we find in Pilate? He's just a guy looking out for himself, right? He's looking out for number one. And we, we do know from some extra biblical texts that 
there were a number of insurrections in this region during Pilate's uh, time as governor. And so he was kind of on thin ice. So if he were to let Jesus go because Jesus is innocent and the mob were to start a rebellion and he would have to kill people to quell that rebellion, that would get back to his superiors and it could be his own head on the, on the chopping block at that point. So Pilate chooses the easy way out. And I think that brings up a question of just sort of reflection and application. You know, are there places in our life where due to the madness of the crowd, we are tempted to take the easy way out? Um, Pilate should have cared about what is true and what is right and what is just. And actually, he didn't care about that at all. In the end, he cared only about himself. One, one, one example these days is most likely the the gender nonsense that we see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't imagine that most people who hear this are like, yep, that's totally the way it is. You know, we've been wrong for 2,000 years plus, you know. And when I talk with people about this, they, they tend to say yes, but you know, they, they will say it themselves, but they're kind of happy that I say out loud what they all think. But lo and behold, you have it on TV, you have it in companies, you have it everywhere. And most people are probably gonna say, you know, I'm not gonna get in trouble for this, I'm right. not gonna shut up. Right. Yep. It's crazy. Yep. Yep. I know I know there's kids in the room, but I I, I want to um, I want to mention this. I saw an interesting sort of like, you know, man on the street interview clip. I think it was this week. And um, you never know how those things are being edited, right? They they can easily be manipulated. But the interviewer was sort of asking guys, uh, do you think it's homosexual to date a trans man? And they were all like, nah, nah. Then, it, then the follow-up question, would you date a trans man? They're all like, no way, man. <laughs> like, never, right? So there you see the pressure to, like, conform. But when it comes down to me personally, that's not my conviction. But I'll do it to appease the crowd, right? I'll say what needs to be said. It was kind of a telling moment. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 give us a theological reason for this uh, scene unfolding, or I guess not not specifically for this scene, but um, for this outcome, and I think it's worth looking at. So if you want to turn there in your Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. So this is part of Peter's speech at Pentecost. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Peter makes no qualms about it. Like you, you saw this stuff, you knew it, you perceived it. Verse 23, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Um, That's a really profound theological statement about the providence of God and the evil that man does and how those two things can intersect in a non-contradictory way. Why was Jesus crucified? According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why was Jesus crucified? Because lawless men conspired against him to kill him. All right. Is, is God guilty of the sin of injustice and in Jesus being crucified? No. Are the, mil, are, the, are the lawless men absolved of their guilt because God providentially ordained it? No. All right, back to Mark chapter 15, verse 16. Well, any other thoughts or questions on Acts chapter 2? Anybody want to? Or, or anything else on this scene where uh, up through verse 15 of chapter 15? Okay. So Mark 15... Verse 16. 
And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Uh, we don't get this in um, Mark's gospel, but I wanted to talk just a little bit about like the flogging that Jesus underwent. I think it's Matthew's record that actually creates a little bit of space between the between Pilate saying uh, giving giving Jesus over to crucify him. And I'm not saying this very well. The way, it, the way it unfolds is Pilate initially has Jesus flogged and then brought back before the crowd. And I, I think in that effort, he is making one more attempt to get Jesus off the hook. Because I think he's appealing to the pity of the crowd, right? Like, look at this man. He's, he's actually innocent, guys. And, and now that I've had him beat to a bloody pulp, and, and I stand him in front of you, will you have mercy on him, right? So I think between the, what would you have me do to this man, crucify him, there's a flogging. And then Pilate says, um, that, that's not correct. Um, how, how does Mark say it? I'm sorry. I should have made better notes at this. Pilate says, would you like me, who do you want me to release for you? Should I release Jesus of Nazareth? They say no. I think at that point, Pilate has Jesus flogged. And then he brings them back, brings Jesus back and says, what should I do to this man? And I think that he's surprised to find that at that point, they still are yelling, crucify him. Um, the point here is just that the crowd has no mercy. So flogging before an execution was actually typical, according to Roman law. Um, the flogging itself was often so brutal as to be a death sentence. Um, I know people have mixed feelings about depictions of Jesus in a movie, but I mean, I think that um, the passion is just a very moving this part of the movie is just incredibly moving, right? When you when you get a visualization of the way Christ was just beat near death, um, and knowing that the flogging would end up being a death sentence for many people, just shows you what it, actually what an incredibly tough man Jesus was. That they could flog him like this and then put the cross on his shoulder and make him carry his own cross to then be crucified. Um, I don't think many people actually could bear that kind of physical torture. So I, I, I mentioned it was Matthew. I actually did put it in here. I think Luke 23, verse 16, shows that Pilate was looking for another opportunity to get Jesus released after the flogging. Um, his hope in the mercy of the crowd was misplaced, unfortunately. Or I guess we should say fortunately. Jesus is given a crown of thorns, a purple cloak. So what's the significance of purple? Yeah, it's a symbol of royalty, right? And he's given a, a crown of thorns. Um, it's sort of a beautiful picture of dignity and indignity, isn't it? Um, He's given a crown, and yet, which is a sign of dignity, and yet it's a crown of thorns that further mocks him and wounds him. And, and, and thorns are from, the, the, from sin. That's how thorns came to the world. They're placed on the head of a man who knew no sin. That's good, right? Because Genesis 3, I didn't even think about that, says that you know, basically by the sweat of your brow, the, the fields will bring forth thorns and thistles for you. That's good. Um, man, there's just so much beautiful imagery in Scripture all over the place, isn't there? And, of course, the great irony is that Jesus is, in fact, 
a king, right? He is a king. And uh, he didn't choose to put upon himself a golden crown full of uh, jewels and rubies and diamonds. Um, He willingly took on this crown. And so we find displayed for us the great humility of our God, willing to subject himself to mockery and pain and abuse, lies, false accusations, ultimately death. And why? So that he might redeem the very creatures that so offensively rebelled against him. Um, And of course, the irony goes deeper because the way Jesus was treated is the way we deserve to be treated by God for our rebellion against him. And yet he willingly subjected himself to that kind of treatment in order that we might be redeemed. Any other commentary on that? Makes you think of that one song uh, that we sing. I hear my voice. How deep the Father's love, I think it is. I hear my voice cry out among the mockers or whatever. Yeah. The scene. And yeah. We were singing that song. And our sin put Christ on the cross. Yeah. yeah. And, and we would like to think that if we were there, we wouldn't have. We wouldn't have been crying out crucified, but no, we would have been totally caught up in it. We would have absolutely bought the lie. Um, uh, I heard that uh, so many times, and I'm sure you like thinking, well, it depends, I think. I'm not saying that I'm better than anyone, but you don't see the disciples saying crucified him here. You know what I mean? So I'm not, I don't want to make a big yeah. deal of it because it's not a big deal, but just like I've heard that so many times, and uh, again, I'm not saying that I'm better. If the people who are already saved, I don't think they are part of the crowd. This yeah. I think these are big time believers. They could be saved later on or whatever, but I feel like the disciples are not part of it. So if you are already saved, you're going to be part of it. So I agree with you there, but we do see we do see Peter deny Jesus, right, to cover himself. But I, I think you could look at it from another angle, which is um, so maybe you would not have been yelling crucify him. But if you were a follower of Jesus and you were standing around, you would have been disappointed. You, you, yeah, exactly. You would have you would have been like, but Jesus, you 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 did all these incredible, powerful things like. How, how can it end like this? I, you're not the person I thought you were. Right? Or no one standing up and saying, take me instead right, of him. Right, you know, right. Laying down their life yeah. for him. Right. Like standing even, for injustice. And I think even sometimes today in our daily lives, there may be situations that we go through that we're like, Jesus, like, I, I know you're all powerful, but why are you allowing yeah. this to happen? Like, like, what is going on here? Totally. It's not for us to... No, totally. We, we often kind of shake our fist at God or blame him when our expectations are disappointed, yeah. right? And the other thing I was thinking is, yes, uh, there were um, believers. However, the noise of the world sometimes seems louder than the, than the force of the belief. Yeah, yeah. The outside of the believers. It's true. Yep. Totally. And even if we weren't... Uh, joining in the crowd and verbally saying crucify him and you know giddy to watch this execution why is Jesus going to the cross he's going to the cross for you and for your sin he's going to the cross for the sin that you haven't yet even committed where like Peter you can say to him in your prayers I will be with you God to the end right I love you I'm committed to your way And then within 24 hours, you're engaging in sin once again, right? So um, the the point here is, like, we're just fickle, and Christ is here because, well, because it was necessary and because this is what man was demanding. And um, God in his, his mercy found a way to weave together man's absolutely abhorrent rebellion against God, 
and his perfect sovereign plan to redeem humanity. Um, verse 20. Um, I don't remember who put the chapter divisions in the Bible. But does anybody know? Was it Merton? Uh, whatever. Uh, you should have put one between 20 and 21 because it's kind of a beautiful cliffhanger that way. Verse 20 is just dark and ominous. And they led him out to crucify him. Um, all of human history and all of scripture is going to reach its dramatic climax in the few verses that follow here. The, so so what, what we're going to see is the death of God, who is the life giver, in exchange for the life of those who willingly chose for themselves death instead of life. Right? So the Bible is full of sort of illustrations of this great exchange. God, the giver of life, is going to embrace death so that those who embraced death might find life. That's where we're going to stop. Anybody have any concluding thoughts? Man, one of the things that I hope you'll fight hard for is when you're reading scripture to not let it become just sort of like commonplace, right? Oh, yeah, I know the story of Jesus' crucifixion. I know that, yeah, he was crucified. Verse 20, they let him out to crucify him. I mean, that is incredibly profound, and it's, it's where all of our peace and hope as believers is found. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to go to the cross that we might be redeemed out of our sins. And I pray that you would help our fickle hearts to love you and to express that love for you through obedience. Um, we just give you thanks that you are the God who, though being worthy of all praise and honor and glory, embraced the humility of crucifixion that that we who are nothing might find our salvation in you we give you praise that you're a god of perfect justice who rightly pours out your wrath on everything that is evil and we thank you that you're also a God who's love so that that wrath was poured on Christ so that we might be embraced. And I ask that these deep and wonderful truths would not become commonplace to us, that when we think on them, we would be moved to praise and adoration and worship and humility and, um, and just great joy that this is the God who, who we worship. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.